Hi, Carrie here. I want to add a quick disclaimer to this episode. Although this is still by far the tamest version of the European witch trials you'll ever find, I do mention genitals for, oh, a good solid minute and a half, which is significantly more than I ever thought would happen in a book arts podcast. I swear it makes sense in context, and it is not explicit nor profane. But if you're listening to this with your grandparents or toddlers or in church or a job interview or anywhere else where it might make you feel weird to hear me say penis half a dozen times, I would recommend putting in some earbuds or saving this episode for a little later. Welcome to Books in the Wild, the podcast about exploring books. I'm Carrie Schroeder. Now that we're in October, I thought we would get into the Halloween spirit by talking about an infamous book called the Malleus Maleficarum, also known as the Witch Hammer. A book responsible for fueling the heinous witch trials throughout Europe for, oh, say, several hundred years. As usual, we will delve into some book history and talk about the author and inquisitor Heinrich Kramer. Then we have a fantastic interview with Rare Books librarian Karen Wall about her research on the printing developments of the Malleus Maleficarum, and a talk with writer and translator Valerie Williams about a 20th century supernatural scholar named Montague Summers. For this episode, what I originally thought would be a fun witchy romp through book history ended up being a little heavy, more than a little misogynistic, and a lot uncomfortable. So I won't be getting into the gory details about the European witch trials in this podcast, but choose to mainly focus on the Malleus Maleficarum itself and its author. There are plenty of gory details about the witch trials out there that you can easily find, trust me. Instead, I want to emphasize how powerful a book can be, for better or worse. The Malleus Maleficarum is, after all, probably the most widely printed and best-selling book after the Bible. It was the go-to witch-hunting manual for centuries, and single-handedly altered the lore of witches forever. Much like prior to Bela Lugosi, the vampire trope didn't come with a strong Hungarian accent, but now the two are inseparable due to Lugosi's portrayal of Dracula in 1931. Similarly, prior to the Malleus Maleficarum, witchcraft wasn't even primarily associated with women, and yet now the image of a witch being a single woman with maybe some cats hanging out with the devil is pretty ingrained in our minds even today. So how did it all start? Please allow me to take you back on a journey to the year 1484 in Innsbruck, current-day Austria. An overzealous Catholic clergyman named Heinrich Kramer has made it his personal duty to stamp out heresy wherever he finds it, to eradicate the sinful serpents in league with the devil, attempting to undermine and annihilate the Catholic Church, and with it all good and God-fearing mankind. Evil which just so happens to usually manifest in the form of women. Now, during this time period, there wasn't actually a strong belief in, nor fear of, witchcraft. For the most part, magic was seen as a relatively harmless, perhaps outdated way of doing things. Before the late 1400s, the general public did not yet associate magic as being in league with the devil, nor was it really considered to be a threat against the church, nor was it primarily associated with women. Kramer, however, believed wholeheartedly in the evils of witches and women and witch women, and he decided that witch hunting was to be his self-appointed lifelong mission. 
In the town of Innsbruck, a knight named Jörg Speis came down with a mysterious illness and died. A young woman named Helena Schoebrin had been seen spending a little too much time with the nobleman, and doesn't seem overly cooperative in answering too many questions about their relationship. She is then accused of having an affair with the man, and later accused of killing him with black magic. Heinrich Kramer, of course, is eager, one might say a little too eager, to lead the trial. A trial that leads to six other women being accused of conspiring through sorcery alongside Schoebrin. But even the other members of the tribunal can't help but notice Kramer's alarming obsession with Miss Schoebrin's sexual history and appalling disgust and disdain for women in general. His behavior is so unsettling that the local bishop of Innsbruck subsequently dismisses Kramer from his position, and all seven women, including Schoebrin, are released with minor or no punishment. Let me repeat this point in case you aren't yet convinced of how unsettling this guy must have been. Heinrich Kramer was fired by the Catholic Church for how he treated women in medieval Europe in 1484. So newly jobless Kramer learns the error of his ways, understands that maybe the most effective way to spread his belief is through compassion and understanding, and spends the rest of his days humbly performing acts of charity and kindness across the globe. Nope, just kidding. Kramer loses his mind, convinced that witches are abound and conspiring against him, and goes straight to Pope Innocent VIII to tell him all about it. Now, it might seem like the Catholic Church would have been always anti-witch, and for the most part they were, but there had been a hierarchy of magic, and a differentiation between white and black magic, and most transgressions could be absolved by a simple confession. In 1080, Pope Gregory VII had written a papal bull, which is a public decree issued directly from the Pope, that forbade the killing of witches and that they shouldn't be blamed for things like crops failing or natural disasters. And so it is 400 years after this decree that Kramer convinces Pope Innocent VIII that witches are a threat against the church. In late 1484, Kramer receives a papal bull called the Summis Deserantes Effectibus, basically declaring that witchcraft is real, that it is a direct threat to the church in league with the devil, and that Kramer is the leading authority on witchcraft, and that everyone should listen to what he says. Sincerely, the Pope. Here is an excerpt from that papal bull. Many persons of both sexes, unmindful of their own salvation and straying from the Catholic faith, have abandoned themselves to devils, incubi and succubi, and by their incantations, spells, conjurations, and other accursed charms and crafts, enormities, and horrid offenses, have slain infants yet in their mother's womb, as also the offspring of cattle have blasted the produce of the earth, the grapes of the vine, the fruits of the trees. Nay, men and women, beasts of burden, herd beasts, as well as animals of other kinds, vineyards, orchards, meadows, pasture land, corn, wheat, and all other cereals, those wretches furthermore afflict and torment men and women, beasts of burden, herd beasts, as well as animals of other kinds. So now, with his witch-hunting pope permission slip, Kramer sets to work writing the one of the most ridiculous, misogynistic, fear-mongering, 
albeit comprehensive, guide to witchcraft ever written, the Malleus Maleficarum. Now, the Malleus Maleficarum is often attributed to two authors, Kramer and another man named Jacob Springer. However, the level of contribution from Springer, if at all, is debatable, so I won't talk about him much in this episode. But for the insatiably curious, Springer was a Dominican friar who was named in the papal bull, but he wasn't listed as a contributor of the Malleus Maleficarum until 1519, 30 years after its first printing and over 20 years after Springer's death. It has been suggested that Springer actually didn't care about witches, and there's no evidence ever linking him to any witch trial. Rumor has it that Springer and Kramer actually hated each other, and that Springer often went out of his way to make Kramer's life and work as difficult as possible. It's also been suggested that the addition of Springer's name as a co-author could have been to give it a little more credibility, as Kramer himself wasn't really a likable person in the church. The Malleus Maleficarum consists of three parts. One, what witches are and what they do. Two, how to identify them. And three, how to witch trial, aka properly punish and eradicate them. Kramer purports that there are many types of witches, but what they all have in common is that they practice the carnal copulation with the devil and are responsible for all sorts of evil deeds, including, but not limited to, hailstorms, drought, madness, poisoning men, making men insane, killing livestock, shape-shifting, sterility in men and animals, miscarriage, stillbirth, eating children, offering children to the devil, seducing men, creating mysterious illnesses, cannibalism, and stealing men's semen so that they can bear demon babies. In fact, there are no less than three full paragraphs on demons and witches stealing semen. Probably more, but I only made it through three. This includes a part about demons gathering spilled semen from the dirt to give to witches for the rituals, so be mindful where you misplace your semen, men. Which is just... I have so many questions. Kramer also includes an uncomfortably long section in the book about all the many ways that witches make men's penises disappear. Sometimes the penis is gone completely. Sometimes it just appears to be gone, but it isn't really. And sometimes the man is just bewitched into thinking that his penis is gone. Sometimes the penis goes away in the middle of the night, but then comes back the next day. It's just a fun game that we women like to do, go around hiding penises, because, you know, witches. So you can see how the church was a little alarmed by Kramer's unsettling preoccupations. But now, thanks to Pope Innocent VIII, he had the support he needed to really spread his unsavory message. Kramer cemented the connection between magic and devils and women. Prior to the Malleus Maleficarum, sure, some people believed in sorcery and magic, but there were a lot of masculine incarnates, like wizards and warlocks and werewolves and other Ws. Post-Malleus Maleficarum, however, all women were especially susceptible to devilish temptations, and it was the job of men to stamp out this evil. It elevated witchcraft and sorcery to the crime of heresy, which was punishable by death. Even the name Maleficarum is feminine. The masculine form of the word would have been Maleficorum, and it's also the masculine form that would have been used to include both genders, like mankind. So by specifically choosing the word Maleficarum, the term can really only pertain to women. 
Kramer claims that the natural reason women are more susceptible to evil than men is that, quote, she is more carnal than a man, as is clear from her many carnal abominations. And it should be noted that there was a defect in the formation of the first woman, since she is formed from a bent rib, that is, the rib of a breast, which is bent as it were in contrary direction to a man. And since through this defect she is an imperfect animal, she always deceives. In the book Fearless Wives and Frightened Shrews, The Construction of the Witch in Early Modern Germany, author Sigrid Brauner writes, According to the Malleus, the only way a woman can avoid succumbing to her passions and becoming a witch is to embrace a life of devout chastity and religious retreat. But the monastic life is reserved to a spiritually gifted few. Therefore, most women are doomed to become witches who cannot be redeemed. And the only recourse open to the authorities is to ferret out and exterminate all witches. I'm going to guess, dear listener, that you're probably thinking that all of this is beyond bananas, right? And that no one, short of an actual medieval child-eating demon monster, could ever support this inflammatory flimsy drivel, right? You would be incorrect, dear listeners. Instead, the Malleus Maleficarum is just an unfortunate example of how powerful books can be. Because what else was happening in late 15th century Germany? That's right, book trivia winners! The Gutenberg Press and the European Print Revolution. Right behind the Bible and one of the first books to ever be printed, and therefore one of the most widespread and most purchased book in the Western world, is the Malleus Maleficarum. And then what happened in Europe right after the mass publication of the Malleus Maleficarum? Why, that's when the 16th century kicked off only the most brutal mass witch trials and executions for, oh, on and off for the next few hundred years. Now, I'm not saying that Kramer was solely responsible for the development of misogyny, fear of magic, or lethal punishment for heresy, but what he did do was tie all of these together into a tidy little package. And now here to talk about some of her up-close and personal research with the Malleus Maleficarum, I'd like to introduce Karen Wall, a reference in legal history and rare books librarian at the Jacob Burns Law Library, a library that has eight copies of the Malleus dated from the time of the witch trials in their collection. She's also the previous past chair of the American Association of Law Libraries Legal History and Rare Books Special Interest Section. I was lucky enough to attend AFA last year, which is the American Printing History Association Conference, where I was able to see Karen's talk about the printing developments of the Malleus Maleficarum. Her presentation was so thought-provoking and fun that when I decided to do an episode on this topic, I thought of her right away, and she was generous enough to talk with us today. And so, here is my conversation with Karen Wall. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for talking with us today. To start off, do you mind talking a little bit about the collection at the Jacob Burns Library? Who usually uses the library, and what's the collection's focus? The Jacob Burns Law Library is the library for the George Washington University Law School. Uh, as such, we're a closed library who caters specifically to the law students and faculty of the university. That said, we also have one of the largest collections of rare legal materials in the United States, uh, which is open for use by researchers upon uh, a request for an appointment. Our rare book collection focuses primarily on the development of law of continental Europe. As such, we have a large collection of French, German, Dutch law, 
uh, Roman, canon, and international law, and materials on the separation of church and state, which is part of that canon law uh, collection. That makes sense. And so how and why did the library acquire so many copies of the Malleus Maleficarum? One of our more interesting sub-collections is a collection of, on witchcraft trials. Uh, these fall under our church and state collection, as they are some of the trials that were batted back and forth between the ecclesiastical courts and the secular courts. As part of that, we be began collecting the Malleus Maleficarum, as it is one of the foundational documents that defines how to run these witchcraft trials. And what was it that inspired you specifically to research the Malleus? It was sort of serendipity. In 2012, a couple of colleagues and I spoke about researching the Salem witchcraft trials uh, at the American Association of Law Libraries Conference in Boston. That certainly piqued my interest in our witchcraft trial collection as a whole. Uh, when I saw the American Printing History Association Conference on the black art and printer's devils, uh, I started out by thinking, oh man, I just really want to go to that conference and learn everything. Uh, I started thinking about all the different interesting topics that I could imagine being discussed and started realizing that I could actually take part in those discussions. Uh, I had three different ideas, the Malleus, uh, witchcraft trial document publication formats, and printer printing forgeries, uh, and the idea that showcased our collection the best was looking at the printing developments of the Malleus Maleficarum. Is there anything known about the previous owners of the books? Were they just book collectors or were they actually witch hunters? Each of our copies is inscribed by at least one former owner, but what their relationship to the book was is not exactly clear. In a couple of cases, it's clearly some sort of collector. Uh, they've dated their signatures to the mid to late 19th centuries when witch hunting is no longer in vogue. Uh, in others, you have either a con contemporaneous signature or an undated signature, or it was clearly owned by another person that has not inscribed their copy, uh, which you can tell from the different handwriting in the marginalia. In our 1614 copy, in addition to the owner's signature, there's also a page of names written in the same hand. Uh, while I could be totally wrong, my hunch is that these were people that the owner may have suspected of being witches, which is so creepy. There's like 20 names on the list. Our 1495 copy did end up in a library, probably a Jesuit library, in Montilla, Spain, at some point. Unfortunately, we don't know quite when or whether it would have been used in the Inquisition. Uh, sadly, I'm terrible at paleography, and no one's done much research on the previous owner of our books uh, to find out exactly who they were and what their relationship to the book was. So, if anybody's looking for a research project, there you go. Come visit us. First off, that would be such an amazing research project. And yeah, also the last thing you want to see in the inscription of a book of witch hunting is a list of names. Um, have you come across any other interesting marginalia? Again, my paleography skills are not great, but yes, there is some marginalia, and where that marginalia is, is found is pretty interesting. In our 1494 Coburger edition, there was a lot of marginalia and a number of manicules, uh, but it's all limited to the first part of the work. This leads me to believe that it was primarily being used by somebody who is interested in proving or disproving the existence of witchcraft, rather than actually dispensing justice. Our 1495 edition, that copy that ended up in Spain, also has a lot of marginalia. 
In this case, instead of just pointing out sections of interest, uh, there are many more notations, including one about how Zoroaster uh, first discovered magic, and are not just limited to the first section, but also make notations in the second section. This means that, in addition to determining if witchcraft exists, the owner also appears to be interested in identifying witches. Meanwhile, in the 1519 edition, the notations are primarily centered around the section about how to try these cases. So, if our marginalia examples are indicative of the times, it really seems like there's a movement from trying to prove that witchcraft exists and is bad, to acceptance of that, and focus on identifying and trying witches. When we move into the 17th century, when the witch-hunting furor is beginning to die down, we're also seeing way less marginalia. So at the Jacob Burns Library, you've been up close and personal with at least eight copies of the Malleus. Are there any notable variations in the different editions, or are they fairly consistent? As far as I've been able to tell, there's not a huge variation in language between the different editions but there's definitely a development in the layout. In the later half of the 16th century, it appears that the authority of the Malleus is starting to be called into question. You start seeing a table of authorities added to lend weight and credence to what's been written in the Malleus. You also start seeing an index, which might imply that it was being used more as a reference work rather than something you were expected to read cover to cover. Right. That's an interesting point. So who, or rather, um, what kind of person would have originally purchased this book? Who was this marketed to? This is basically Kramer's manifesto, so I think he wanted as many people to read it as possible. Uh, but if I were to guess, I imagine it would be marketed to those in religious communities, especially those who were in the position of Inquisitor. And speaking of Heinrich Kramer, he was a real prize, wasn't he? Do you mind telling us a little bit about him? Hoo boy, where to start? Uh, Kramer was an inquisitor during the 15th century in Germany. We're talking about the period right before the Reformation, when there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the church, and the church's plan is to quash that dissatisfaction and call it heresy. Kramer's role as inquisitor was to stamp out those heresies before they spread and get people to recant and come back to the church. He takes it into his head that a major heresy that's rampant in Germany and being ignored is witchcraft, which at the time is not really considered a big deal by anybody else. Uh, there are a few differing viewpoints on what's going on in this area in Ger of Germany at the time. Uh, one is that magic doesn't exist and those who practice it are fooling themselves. Uh, another is that while people may practice magic, it's benign and can't really affect larger changes and isn't really a big deal. Kramer disagrees with both of these viewpoints and says that magic and witches are real and that all practitioners of magic have made a pact with the devil, whether they realize it or not. His compatriots basically laugh at his ideas until he convinces the Pope to agree with him, and the Pope writes a papal bull saying, you have to listen to him and aid him in his desire to prosecute witches. It sounds like you guys have a big problem with that up there. Uh, also, all of this applies to Jacob Sprenger as well. Uh, and that's the main reason people associate Sprenger with the Malleus as well. There's not a lot of other evidence that he was at all involved in the writing of this. 
Kramer then writes the Malleus and, as a preface, includes the papal bull as sort of a, see, I told you so, to everyone who disagreed with him. I really tried not to view this work from the point of view of a 21st century feminist, but it's really hard not to view this guy as a straight-up misogynist. A fair amount of the first part all boils down to erectile dysfunction and trying to find a way to blame it on women. Uh, and, and sure, while both men and women could both be witches and dabble in the dark arts, clearly women, being weaker-minded, would fall for the devil's trickery way more often. Come on, seriously? I am so right there with you. You had mentioned something interesting about the Polish translation of the Malleus. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's of particular interest to you? The existence of the 1614 Polish translation of the Malleus is fascinating to me. It's the only time during the early modern period when these witchcraft trials were actually taking place in Europe when the Malleus is translated from Latin into a local language. You see a pretty drastic increase in witchcraft trials in Poland over the 60 years following its publication. But one of the most interesting things about that translation is that it only includes the first two sections, the one set on proving the existence of witchcraft and the one on how to identify a witch. This, the third section, the procedure for trying someone for witchcraft is left out of the translation. Now, don't get me wrong. The procedures Kramer came up with weren't particularly good or impartial or, you know, just. Uh, they allowed for torture to be used to obtain evidence and they condoned pretty invasive searches in order to help identify witches. But there were at least some restrictions. Uh, in the Polish witchcraft trials, there were no restrictions. Torture of any and all types were used not only to extract a confession, but also to extract the identification of other witches as well. That is truly frightening. Well, thank you so much, Karen. I'm sorry I keep repeating myself here, but it's crazy to me that this book on witch hunting is one of the best-selling, most widely printed books of all time. It was an imposing, hefty tome of a book. It was written in Latin, an authoritative holy language. Many renditions of the Malleus Maleficarum also set the text into two columns, reminiscent of the Gutenberg Bible, perhaps to further emphasize its holy importance. And as was the style at the time, the book was originally printed using black letter, a heavy Germanic typeface meant to mimic manuscript writing, which is also something you would see in a lot of religious and holy sacred texts. And then as Karen mentioned, just when the Malleus started losing steam, the papal bull was added in the preface. So just in case anyone tried to question Kramer's bonkers theories, they would know that they would be questioning the entire Catholic church. Kramer's ideas of what constituted witches was so bizarre and so in-depth that really no one was safe from being accused of witchcraft. I'm sure you've heard a lot of it before. If you say you're a witch, you're a witch. If you deny being a witch, you're a witch. Are you a single woman with maybe too much male attention? Witch. An older woman with no attention? Witch. Standing too close to a cat? Witch. If you get tossed in a river and float, you're a witch. But if you get tossed in a river and drown, eh, maybe not a witch, but... Whoops. It is estimated that between 40 to 60,000 women, men, and children were executed during the European witch trials from the 16th to the mid-18th century. 
and there is a direct correlation between the printing of the Malleus Maleficarum and the spread and veracity of the witch trials. After its first printing in 1487, 20 more editions were printed by 1520. This is when the witch hunts really started to pick up in Western Europe. This was followed by somewhat of a lull for nearly 54 years, until it was reprinted by a Venetian printer in 1574. Another 16 editions were made between 1574 and 1669, and this time, not just in the official Latin, but now included translations in German and Polish, common languages. And, not so coincidentally, the witch trials during this time in Germany and Poland are well documented as being particularly heinous. The latest early modern printing of the Malleus Maleficarum was done in Frankfurt in 1698. I say latest early modern printing, not to try and be confusing, but to say that this was the last time it was printed as a guidebook for the purpose of actually hunting witches. After this printing, the book lay dormant for about 200 years until scholars started studying the history of the European witch trials. Which brings us to the first English translation of the Malleus Maleficarum in 1923 and a strange goblin of a man named Montague Summers. Summers was a scholar on demonology and witchcraft described as having a rotund body but with disproportionately slender legs, an unusually high-pitched screechy voice, had an old-fashioned judge's hairstyle, and wore long black capes and a sword cane. So when he says scholar and expert on demonology, I'm thinking, you know, maybe just an actual demon. So Mr. Summers, how did you come to know so much about demonology and witchcraft? Um, you know, just learned from a friend. <laughs> Up next, I have asked Valerie Williams to speak more on Montague Summers and the translations of the Maleficarum. Valerie holds a master's degree in literature with a special interest in Romanticism, Medievalism, and Rilke. I was especially eager to hear Valerie's statements on Summers as a writer and German-English translator. Wedged between Victorian medievalism and spiritualism, two periods that riveted Western Europe, came the birth of Montague Summers. By all accounts an odd man, English-born Summers took his country's fascination with the medieval to an extreme. Consumed with the ghouls of decrepit Gothic abbeys, Summers, a clergyman first, literary critic second, wrote about witches, vampires, and werewolves. For him, this wasn't pornography or social commentary disguised as bone-chilling horror pulp. Summers believed in the existence and presence of each. A prominent man of letters, Summers studied and wrote extensive criticism on 17th century texts before turning his attention to supernatural matters. He covered all the greats of the period, the individuals who led the canon before setting his sights on an ambitious little translation project, bringing the Malleus Maleficarum into English. For a man who believed vampires and werewolves lived among society, the hammer against witches wasn't a matter of intrigue. Summers set out to warn society. Much like the originators of the hammer, Montague Summers had his concerns about who was who and what was what. Though the English are often accused of xenophobia, Summers seemed preoccupied with the presence of the supernatural rather than the foreign. This was betrayed by the word vampire, written on a white cloth on the side of his portfolio bag, which he carried along with his shovel. Yes, old Monty walked around with a shovel in hand, like an angry Eastern European villager chasing down Frankenstein. Though his accoutrements might seem strange, 
and his real reasons for translating the Malleus Maleficarum into English from its original Latin are not precisely known, Montague Summers was not the first to do it, nor was he the first to reprint it. Conceptualized in Switzerland and published in Germany, it begs the question why the Malleus Maleficarum was written in Latin rather than German. Kramer wrote the text while present in a German-speaking society, after all. If German had been the lingua franca of the 15th century, perhaps he would have. But Latin was still regarded as the universal language. It would be years before Latin would be replaced by French, and eventually English, as the language of law, church, and business. Kramer's conscious decision to pen the Malleus Maleficarum ensured that any learned man, a man who could also quite easily carry out justice in the name of God, state, or both, could access the text and utilize it to its full extent. By the time Montague Summers came into the world, French had replaced Latin, English replaced French, and the Malleus Maleficarum was once again called to print. Since the sun had yet to set on the British Empire, perhaps there was no more logical place on earth for the hammer against witches to return to the hearts and minds of law, church, and business. The English believed witches were bad for business, since King James I, a guy who regularly sought religious counsel, prayer, and publicly shared contempt for witches and witchcraft whenever his merchant ships took to the seas. Guess who got blamed when one of those ships sunk? In Old Monty's days, society still had its preoccupation with the welfare of commerce, especially the British Empire and the industrialists of America. The captains of industry on both sides of the Atlantic weren't paying the church for prayer over their business affairs like a good early modern business person might. These folks were running to the new religion of the day, spiritualism. A religion that not only asserts the existence of an afterlife, but also the notion that the dead can be communicated with, and boy can they talk. Magician Houdini famously denounced spiritualism, while Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and practically every other artist, author, and interesting person alive in the early 20th century gave it credence. After artists embraced it, industrialists soon followed, shelling out good money for advice from the other side and any other psychic predictions they could gather. The Western world couldn't get enough of the supernatural. Enter Montague Summers, his shovel, and his English translation of the Malleus Maleficarum. Latin hadn't fallen out of favor completely, yet English traveled farther in the early 20th century. A new translation brought new literary and social attention to the legal guide previously legitimized by the church. Though Latin was still used by the church when Summers translated the Malleus Maleficarum, English supersedes its importance in legal and cultural matters. Those with power and influence, those who could execute a hunt and a hearing would have done so in English, not Latin. Unfortunately for Montague Summers, no one was really hunting for witches during his day, or looking to blame someone for impotence, failed shipments, or crops dying. Not to be beat, Old Monty moved on to study, and warn against, vampires and werewolves. Thank you, Valerie. As Valerie mentioned, witch hunting lost much of its steam by the 19th and 20th century. Though when you think about things like the Satanic Panic in the 1980s, and the West Memphis Three, who were teenagers wrongfully accused of murder in 1994 because they listened to devil-worshipping music, you can see some pretty contemporary after-effects. Even Harry Potter has been banned on and off from libraries because it promotes witchcraft. Books can be pretty powerful things. Wars have been fought over books. Books have been stolen and forged, and not necessarily always for monetary reasons, but simply for power. 
Books have been banned and destroyed out of fear of how readers will react to them. And not just benign books like Harry Potter, but potentially dangerous books like Mein Kampf or The Turner Diaries or Anarchist Cookbook. And even though there's a lot of questionable ideas and opinions available online or other unofficial channels, the book form itself is imbued with a certain sense of authority, and it can really add credibility for some otherwise pretty crazy ideas. So I guess the answer is to be mindful and ask questions and do your research. And especially in this day and age, if someone is pushing some questionable source material on you, like maybe how all women are witches and eat babies and hide penises, just make sure that they're not their own source. If you're curious about reading the Malleus Maleficarum, you can easily find free e-versions online. It is very much in the public domain. And if you would like to read more about the Malleus Maleficarum and the European Witch Trials, my recommended reading lists are as follows. The book that Karen Wall really needs to write. Hint, hint. Karen was very instrumental in putting together this episode, and she was very generous with sharing her research from the presentation with the American Print History Association. Other recommended reading are Zegrid Browner's book, Fearless Wives and Frightened Shrews, The Construction of the Witch in Early Modern Germany. The Malleus Maleficarum and the Construction of Witchcraft, Theology and Popular Belief by Hans Peter Brodel, and Witchcraft in Europe, 400 to 1700, A Documentary History by Alan Charles Kors. For further listening recommendations, Historical Blindness is a great podcast that covers obscure and mysterious history, and right now they have a two-parter episode about the rise of the satanic panic in the 1980s, starting all the way back in the medieval period. You can check that out at historicalblindness.com, or I'm sure you can find it on most podcatchers out there. Another podcast that I enjoy is Monster Talk, which is a paranormal podcast released through Skeptic Magazine. In episode 110, they interview author Brian Regal about his research on Montague Summers, and it is fascinating. You can find Monster Talk through skeptic.com forward slash podcasts, or again, through most podcatchers. I will have all these listed in the reader's notes as well. Again, I would like to thank Karen Wall and Valerie Williams for being so generous with their time, knowledge, and expertise. As always, feel free to contact me at booksinthewildpodcast at gmail.com or visit booksinthewild.com. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram at booksinthewildpodcast. Thank you so much for listening. Have a very happy Halloween. And I am so sorry that I said the word penis so many times in this episode. I can almost promise that will never happen again.